I appreciate everyone uh, getting me out here, and it's been a fun day. I've spoken with a number of you, and uh, so and I've um, asked Sonia what she wanted me to present, and I really came out here to talk about the uh, food guidelines which the federal government's put together over the last couple of years, um, and that'll be sort of the the core of the message I'm bringing to you, so you can enjoy it on the podcast and later. But I wanted to walk through some other ideas just that are that I had. Now, I work um, at the Center for Disease Control, but um, as in any talk like this that isn't sort of approved um, through our Associate Director for Science, these are my opinions. And um, you can ask me about what degree of my opinion versus uh, other opinion they are as we go, if, if you're curious. So some, of, some of the things that I would present are directly from CDC and HHS approved. The Food Service Guidelines have cleared HHS and GSA, uh, so that material is, uh, is, is very much the voice of CDC and not my own. Um, some of these other concepts are, are, you know, they vary, and we can get to this start. Now, I'm going to skip around a little bit. If that bothers anyone, good, it'll keep you awake. If it doesn't bother you, well, okay. You know, I, how I like to adjust a, you know, I wish that the program was made different so that I could, like, you know, we could start it and sort of say, this is the presentation right here, right? <laughs> and then I could just go up here and that would highlight nicely and come up. But that is not, not how it works. So I have to push all these buttons and we'll drop back and forth and I'll flip around a lot. So can I apologize? Um, so I don't know if you all know who Wendell Berry is, but he's a good writer. We talked someone about writing earlier. He's a very good writer. Um, but he has brought it to our attention a number of times that there doesn't seem to be a lot of connect between a lot of connection. Come on and sit down, y'all. <laughs> Not a lot of seats left, huh? So he's brought to our attention a number of times that there's not a lot of a connection between sort of the food system and the health system. Um, we can talk about that more as as, as we go. I, I'm not sure it's exactly that direction, but it's it's a point. And I just want to show the standard CDC dogma um, showing that um, we are getting heavier as a nation. And this is the same data, a different presentation, a different format, a different sort of visual interpretation of getting heavier as a nation. This was a slide. The slides of this color throughout the, here have been done by Dan, Dan Imhoff, who wrote uh, Food Fight, Assistance Guide to the Farm Bill. Uh, he does a nice job presenting data, so I want to do some of his slides. Let you all enjoy them. Um, do we care about obesity? Um, do we care about people being overweight? You all probably just saw the couple papers that came out showing that maybe obesity wasn't so bad. Um, I, I think those are proved to be a disservice to the public health community and maybe to the nation as a whole, but that's a whole entirely other discussion. I think. Um, Aligning the increase in um, BMI with uh, other outcomes such as diabetes, it does appear that you know, we know diabetes is increasing, and we also know that worldwide diabetes is increasing. And a recent paper just came out documenting the increases in diabetes over the I think it was about 20-year period documented. So that we worldwide we have a diabetes uh, increase. Um, and just just you know what causes this? What's the problem of this? I don't know, but I will say that. Uh, this is data from Haynes showing fruit and vegetable consumption. Um, this slide and the next one. And what we do know is we know that these are percents. Very few people in the population are actually consuming anywhere close to the amount of fruits and vegetables 
that would be recommended for, uh, for an ideal diet. Um, really, no matter how you look at it, we're not consuming enough fruits and vegetables as a population. Um, so w why not? And this is just the characterization of the food system that I, I just want to, th want to throw out. And what we've lost by the way the food system developed is, um, is over here. And I think this is, these often I think point to why we're not eating the way we should be. Is I think one of the things we've lost by the way we developed the food system, which is large with vertical integration, large economies and specializations, we've lost taste. And I think that fiddle, um, funnels back into why we have changed our dietary behavior and moved towards uh, more processed things and so forth, is it's hard to really you know, take a, a fresh tomato and compare that um, against a processed food or something. It's, it's, it's hard to get better than a fresh tomato, but then again, a tomato that's not fresh, that's traveled long distances, that's been picked green, they're not, not going to taste very good. We've lost crop diversity, and diversity is a, a, certainly one of the things that's repeatedly uh, connected with dietary choice. You know, people like diversity in their diets. Um, We've lost family farms, you all know this, connections, um, the connections to the food system and health. And then what we get over here, I, this slide I brought, I got from Georgia Organics and I've changed it a little bit, but mostly it's, it's what they had. And I'm actually not convinced that the left-hand column over there, efficiency, cheap, convenient, scalable, and shelf life, I'm not sure any of those are actually true. I mean, yes, shelf stable, we got that. Um, but the rest of them, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we actually get a lot from the current food system we have. I'm thinking, Maybe in a lot of ways it's, it's failing everyone, including the, the people involved. Um, and also, for those who just came in, the rest of you, um, I'm going to talk sort of fast here because I've got a bunch of slides I just want to sort of walk through and get to some things deeper, but I'd love to have questions or interruptions as we go. Just disagree with me and throw stuff at me. Um, so um, one of the problems that I think drives the system being problem what makes things problematic is that uh, nutrients are expensive and calories are cheap but i don't necessarily think this is a problem with the food system i think this is a fact of our world that's just how it is calories are just cheap it's easy to raise calories it's harder to raise nutrients so i i, I don't it, it's 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 and you know the new dietary guidelines one of the major message in the sort of first message in the dietary guidelines which i was so glad to see is that we should choose diets that are nutrient dense. It's a great message. I mean, that's, if there's one message from the nutrition hat that many of us in here wear, um, the one I chose a number of years back, and I think that uh, many of us are moving towards, is that a very good bit of dietary advice for the public is choose nutrient dense foods. The one complexity many of us nutrition you know, hats have on to that is our carbohydrates or our calories, isn't that? a nutrient and isn't a calorie dense food but just forget that part of the nutrient density other nutrients aside from calories need to be dense calories are the one nutrient that you sort of want to choose foods that are not calorie dense um, most of you all sort of probably get that but it's the price thing that gets uh, com complicated here is that it seems to be that these high calorie foods are the cheap foods and when you're on a budget which uh, most Americans particularly um, in today's economy are that's where our food dollar tends to go. Um, how does that relate overall to the overall picture? And this is from a number of bits of data. Uh, the red line is the uh, increase in obesity. Um, and the other lines are sort of uh, what's happened with food prices over the last uh, 20, 30 years. Um, and you see that fruits and vegetables have got more expensive, while um, 
carbonated beverages and sugars, uh, Sweden foods have got cheaper. Um, I think it's a telling slide, you know. And, and it, um, so this is the other question: is, is it cheap for the society? Is it cheap? It's cheap when you go to the grocery store, but is it cheap for society? We all have the same answer to that. We all agree. Although this is some data that just came out. Just this is a uh, I don't know. Whenever I did this, this maybe even a year old. I don't know. Um, but it just showed it, one more actual dollar cost in obesity, and I, mostly it costs more for women to be obese than men. I thought that was interesting. Um, this is a Georgetown study. Um, so this is from Dan Imhoff's book and from his slides again, and it relates this problem back of calories being cheap to the subsidies through the Farm Bill. Um, and I just throw this up as just a speculation. You know, does, does this influence the actual outcome of the costs of uh, foods in our food system. I don't know, but it does shape what is produced in our food system. You know, uh, we've had, there's, there's less direct evidence that subsidy payments actually change the price of the calorie than you would expect. Uh, again, the, it's, it's not been really clearly, clearly explored anyway, but uh, it's speculation. We do produce a lot of corn. Um, we produce so much corn, the corn goes everywhere, and the corn goes into everything. And this is sort of Michael Pollan's genius out of Omnivore's Dilemma, is you go into the grocery store, and it's just a 1,000 types of corn. Well, 100,000 types of corn. Um, and here's more corn. Um, and this is corn in a form that doesn't um, tend to be very healthy once it ends up in our bodies, and it ends up in our streams, and it ends up in our environments for a number of reasons. Uh, we can talk more about animal production if you want to, but this is not the pool I was hoping my daughter would go swimming in, um, and this is not the way that I like to see pigs raised. Um, and you all have seen this, but I like to show it again just because it's a clever slide. Uh, this is romantic in some draconian sort of dark age sense. Uh, anyway, you all get the picture. Um, so what is a sustainable food system? Um, and who should define a sustainable system, and how would we define one? And there was a commission done by the um, Department of Agriculture in the 80s that actually went through a whole lot of effort to define what a sustainable food system was. And I think if there's been a confusion by the term sustainable in our minds, it's because we've overthought the idea. And the American Dietetics Association, who... Uh, it's just a simple definition that they put out here. And I use this definition all the time just because... It's just, this is directly their wording, and it just directly lays out what a sustainable food system is. And I, I like that they sort of bring it all together. Food is not just about calories. Food is about a relationship to our society, to our ecology, to our world, to each other. And I, I think this sort of talks about that, and it sort of, um, it brings it together as an issue. I'm not going to read the slide. Uh, But I'll show you some pictures of what I consider a sustainable food system to, um, you know, be involved with. You know, that it, farmers do need to handle and know their animals. There need to be some uh, a husbandry there. Um, most of you, this this model I will say did end up in the dietary guidelines 2010, which I was surprised. Um, why was I surprised? Um, no, I wasn't surprised. I'll take that back. 
Um, I was glad to see it there because it shows that they're trying to pull their vision out. The nutritionists are pulling our vision out and saying that there's an ecological approach we have to take thinking about how to orient society around people making healthy choices. Um, and and I, I don't know if you all have seen this or not. Um, Mary Story is one of the people that sort of has done very ni a very nice job of um, drawing this model out. It's the socio-ecological model, basically. Um, and what this shows specifically, and I think I've got, yeah, I have this in here again, actually. Uh, well, is the different points where we can make different influences. It's from the individual to the soci social norms and values that we can make different influences. And I'll say that, for especially the younger people in here, I, I would challenge you to challenge the model. You know, someone thought of this, it's okay, it's a static model. Does it really make any sense? Um, I, I, would have, I would have a lot of arguments with how it's organized, but that's, that's okay. And I think that we do need to challenge these models because maybe they're not as easy to use to make change as we'd like them to be. They're good now, and they're a good beginning, but they should be... Uh, adjusted. I, I particularly have problems with the term social norms. I don't think there are necessarily social norms. I think they're social structures. I think they're cultural norms. Things like that. Um, this is the same model um, as that one basically, but it just shows more barriers. And this is the one that Mary Story, I think, I think this is her slide. Um, it's an excellent way of looking at where do I intervene in a system. Um, this is American Dietetics Association. Um, their health model, um, sort of where does the RD, where does the nutrition professional fit in, how do we make these changes, um, what are our jobs, um, you know, building on sort of a classic model of natural resources and human resources all the way up through expertise and then fitting in the, uh, these aspects here that we all think a lot about with policy in the middle driving the system. Um, it's a nice model. Um, this is another model um, out of Michigan State um, where you have uh, these inner rings and outer rings. I can never read them. One, the inner ring is the food system components, and the outer ring is the community-based food system outcomes. And again, I think it's sort of a nice model, another way of looking at it. Um, <laughs> this is my favorite model. Um, this model is worth looking at on the web. Um, you know, actually, I think this model may, I actually think these are the same picture. It's just that, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is an interesting type of modeling. Um, it's not real enlightening to look at. But if you can look at this model on the web, I encourage you all to look it up. I don't know what it's called. I think if you type in obesity systems map, it'll pop up. And when you run your cursor over it, it'll highlight different aspects and different relationships between the different uh, uh, scrambled lines, things. I don't think this is the way to communicate information. Um, I do think this is the way to raise pigs. Um, so um, Alice Waters came to CDC and spoke um, about five or six years ago and set us on the course that we've been on, on and off for a, um, a period of time there now about thinking about that maybe food should be a solution instead of a problem. Um, and this is a drawing that was done during her talk there. Um, it was interesting. It was interesting having that kind of influence in the sort of uh, academic institution, you know, government institution. Um, 
It was inspiring. Um, and this is, I would argue, another model, but it's a very simple model and that it simply says that it's not that food should be good and good or clean and fair, or, that, or is it's and. It's that food is only good when it's clean and fair, and that these need to go together. And so that the quality of food need to entail all three. Um, what good, clean, and fair mean? Uh, they have a deeper meaning in the uh, sort of philosophy of the slow food movement. Um, I encourage reading in that area. That's his, uh, the slow food movement literature is excellent. Carlo Petrini, who started the slow food movement, is an excellent author, excellent writer, um, and uh, he defines and walks through these ideas in great detail. Um, I'll leave that there. Oops, other way. Um, this is this is my. You know, I think we need to all have our own personal food system model too. And this is sort of my food system model, where you know I believe that I would like to go and to a farm and participate in the process um, with my children and um, that type of thing. You know, I think that maybe different people want to have different relationships to their food system um, and have their own food system model. And more to the public health perspective, how do we get impact? And um, the traditional RD nutrition model, we generally thought about educating individuals for change. And, and most of us have sort of decided that that's not working too well and that we're more interested in a policy environment type approach. And it's primarily that these two lines on the outer side, which I could have thrown on the previous slide, but both sides are sort of pirated. Um, so it's easier just to show it in one. And that's that, you know, we get reach with less money by focusing on policy environment. And maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe focusing on individuals just with food isn't a particularly effective method to do it anyway because individuals aren't necessarily going to be responsive to the message. Um, so um, this is a slide that I've put together over... Um, a number of presentations over many years over just thinking about what are the different aspects of a sustainable food systems and, and where do you intervene and each one of these if we had another hour um, can be split out into into a whole series of different steps and I, I just want to say this is sort of uh, a walk a walk through the idea from agriculture to the effects on the built environment um, to food policy and assessment which, which uh, informs and affects um, everything above that line, everything below it, to uh, direct marketing, all the uh, business aspects around food, whether that's, that's direct marketing or indirect marketing. And that includes things like institutional purchasing, which I'm going to talk about um, here very short shortly, um, and, and things like farmers markets, which are, um, you know, in a way, I might have reversed these two columns because farmers markets, community sorted agriculture, that's when you get down here into this effect of the gastronome, the personal relationship to the food system, issues of gardening, and how do I relate to my food. Um, it's beyond education, it's enculturation. Um, and that's when you get into family meals and family policy um, and, and culture and cultural development, cultural norms, and the social structures that allow those cultural norms to play out. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to skip this. I'm going to skip a lot of slides at this point because I have a lot of slides. But this is just specifics on agricultural policy and how far we can go, you know, and where to go in different areas. Um, I would say that 
there's been a lot of experimentation in agriculture policy worldwide. I, I don't know that we know how to properly align it, but um, speaking earlier with people about the economy of, of food and um, what we need to do is we need to figure out a way to align the affordability of food for the, the people with less um, income so that farmers can actually make a living. You have to hit both ends of the spectrum. And do you subsidize it in the middle with people spending with those with some people spending more money on food? I'm not sure, but the lowest common denominator in society must be able to afford food. I'm assuming that's an ethic that we have, um, and that that amount of money they're spending on food probably needs to be one where a farmer is able to make a good living. Because it seems like in our society we sort of decided that we could have one without the other, and it's the cake and eat it too thing. And I think we can have our cake and eat it too. We just have to figure out how to cut it right. Um, so family meals, I just love the family meals idea. And there's been so much done on it. And I'll say that there was just a um, summary paper that, it put out, uh, that was put out uh, on family meals. And it was the first paper that I'd really seen that showed that family meals do benefit fruit and vegetable consumption. So for my CDC hat, fruit and vegetable world, I was very happy to see that. But I'll say the majority of uh, research on family meals has been about um, teen angst, teen violence, uh, pregnancy, the more social outcomes of the importance of sitting down with your parents and having a dialogue, developing a story, a na the narrative that develops in your family at the table is the narrative that you'll carry into adulthood and it's shown to be incredibly important for society. So. This brings the rationale for promoting diet and thinking about food into a much more, um, uh, I think, much more holistic realm. So I like family meals. We don't, right now at CDC, we don't have any sort of statement or position on family meals. Uh, we we might in the future. It's it's one of our interests. One of my interests. Um, and this fits into that. Development of cultural norms. These are all areas that I think are important. The general area of gastronomy, and again, I'd probably... Carlo Petrini is a good start for thinking about gastronomy. He's the person that's brought it into the modern, into the modern uh, mindset. Um, people historically have talked a lot about gastronomy, um, but recently it's, it's Carlo Petrini that's really led this, this thinking. Um, and I just, I'll, I'll mention this. I was going to skip this slide, but I'll just mention this briefly. Um, why local? You know, is local important? And we had a discussion about this economically earlier. Why, do we care about local? Is, is local important? And I would say the argument for local is not that it's th this is not local. Local is everywhere. And that if you want a sustainable food system, you need to create a food production system, say nationwide or worldwide, where every locale has the ability efficiently to produce what it produces well. I think one of the arguments against local has been, well, should you be growing X, Y, or Z in a region where it really doesn't grow well? Or should you be importing it? I think it's a resource issue, and often probably it doesn't make sense to grow some products in some places. No, I should take that back. I think it almost never makes sense to grow some products in some places. Are we going to build greenhouses in, you know, uh, north of the Mason-Dixon so we can grow uh, uh, citrus fruits? No, transport isn't that difficult, and it's not going to become that expensive, I don't think, in the near future, or you just don't eat citrus in that part of the country, which I don't think is reasonable either. 
Um, but I think what you do, do what you do is you take advantage of the location for production, and, there, and through that whole process, you increase food security, also local economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty pictures. So CDC, real quickly. Um, this is Health and Human Services. Um, we're here. Um, there are about 120,000 employees in Health and Human Services. And, oh look, how nice. Even showed you. Um, CDC's mission. We're collaborating to create the expertise, information, and tools that people and communities need to protect their health through health promotion, prevention of disease, injury, and disability, and preparedness for new health threats. CDC is one of the most respected, I think it is the most respected federal um, agency. Um, I don't know exactly who did the poll, but I've heard this. Um, why? I think it's largely because we're, we're out of the light, right? And it's, it's um, core functions. I mean, I think it's just, just the bolds that count here. Um, assessment, policy development, and assurance. We are not a regulatory institution. I think that's one reason we probably um, stay out of the, uh, the limelight of a public dislike. Um, but we do recommend policy development and try to gather the science for policy development. Um, I'm the Division of Nutrition and Physical Activity, which is in the Chronic Disease Center, and I think maybe this will highlight it for you. Yes, it will. How nice is that? Um, and so this is the whole s Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and we're here in chronic disease. Um, centers work together a little bit, not quite as much as maybe um, we could, but it's difficult to work across division um, and across, across uh, fields. Um, and I'm going to move through some of this. I want to move on to, um, let's see, escape. Here, I'll go ahead and give you the slide here. So our division, Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, uh, acti Physical Activity, Nutrition, and Obesity, uh, we have six target areas because obesity has become sort of our general focus all around, and that's increasing fruits and vegetables, breastfeeding, and physical activity, and then three in the decreasing category, and that's energy-dense foods, sugar drinks, and television screen time. And that's sort of what we pulled from approaches that we thought were uh, strongest. Um, I'll say there are, we have a lot more approaches. These are sort of the high, the ones that were pulled off the top um, because we can only focus on so many things. Um, and then we have a number of strategies to increase fruits and vegetables. I'm not going to get into this. I will share these slides so you all can uh, use them as you like. And I'm going to go into this somewhere else. Let's see how to get out of this. Escape. Um, so you all are very quiet. Other slides that you're all interested in. I'm sure you all have seen this slide, but I'm going to show it anyway. It's an increase in farmers' markets. I want to say the new numbers up here. So we've had this continuous increase in farmers' markets for um, almost 20 years now. So why? No one knows why. Because farmers' markets are a good thing. That's what I think. Um, I want to show you this slide as well. This is just like this, this uh, free-range children. Anyway, like that. Um, so, what Sonia had me come out here to talk about, um, I will now get to. This is a whole different sort of change of uh, 
topic area and thinking and presentation. Um, this, this is about trying to orient public health to affect a system and to take a systems approach and to look critically within um, the different processes from production to consumption and say, what are the leverage points within this system where if I move them a little bit that I can rock the system a particular way, but not just rock it so it sort of, you know, like a cup hits the ground and collapses and breaks into a million pieces and has to find its way back together, but where it'll reorient at a, diff at a different homeostatic level, where it'll find a new homeostasis, where what we'll get out of it is more production of healthy foods, more consumption of healthy foods. Because remember, that's a circle, right? You can't have more production without more consumption. It won't work. The business model's not good. This is including things like the business model. This isn't really what's maybe as us nutritional biochemistry type people think is sexy, um, but it sells. It's got to sell. So um, health and sustainability. If I was to do this on my own, I would just start with sustainability. I would drop health, off to get health out of this altogether. I would say sustainability guidelines. And under sustainability, well, I'd find health there. And you've got to almost search your heart or search your uh, um, evidence base to see if in, in this information, if you think that health is in there in sustainability or sustainability is in health. Um, I would argue one or the other. So, um, thoughts? Okay. Well, uh, anyway, so for health, we did, so what, what this came from is so, so we're going to create these guidelines for the federal government. And they're going to be for all HHS facilities, that's 120,000 employees, and all GSA facilities, that's 10,000 buildings. And we're going to create guidelines for their cafeterias, for their vending machines, for their incendiary in shops. Um, saying what kind of food they can sell. Okay, suddenly that's a popular idea with people. Um, depends how you approach it. If you approach it with this is a policy, it's not going to be a popular idea. And we'll come back to this in a minute. So what I'm going through here in the next couple of slides are the general is the general ideology that we use to approach this idea. Um, food guidelines isn't something particularly new. We've done this with schools. Uh, the IOM came out with food guidelines for schools. Um, the dietary guidelines in general are food guidelines, but they're not specific. They're not specific enough to take into a cafeteria. They have been applied to the school food setting um, thanks to the IOM, but I wouldn't say that the IOM's guidelines for school foods necessarily is a translation of the dietary guidelines. It's, it's similar, but it's not necessarily a translation. There's a lot of, uh, I would say, disparity between making that leap. So whenever you make a leap between general dietary guidelines, like the dietary guidelines for Americans, and you say, okay, these are specific food practices. There's a lot of interpretation in, in that process. So how do you make that interpretation? Ultimately, the person that makes the interpretation is the person choosing the food, right? We can offer certain foods, but ultimately, if you want to come in and choose the wrong foods, you will. You might. You may. So, okay, I'll get back to that. So with health, we said, okay, let's make it easy. We've got to get this through federal through the federal scientist, we got to clear this through the entire government, or not the entire government, through Health and Human Services and the General Services Administration. So we're going to align these guidelines from a dietary perspective with the Dietary Guidelines 2010, which were conveniently just being created and just coming out as we were working on this. For health. 
We also said there are other aspects of health that are real obvious that are low-hanging fruit. There's atmosphere, architecture, cleaning materials, uh, serving ware, and cooking methods. And we thought, well, we can touch on all those at least a little bit. Um, where the evidence is either there or where best practices in industry, and this becomes critical, where best practice in industry makes us an easy process to support. Um, sustainability. Again, not that easy to define. From a food systems perspective, this is the same definition I shared before from uh, American Dietetics Association. Um, that's a good definition. It's relatively well accepted. Um, not necessarily that definition, but the general concepts behind it are relatively well accepted. But sustainability at large, you know, what are we talking about? How do we support it? And conveniently, we're at a time when both the Bush administration as well as the current Obama administration had a number of different um, mandates on uh, sustainability in the federal government that came out. So we were able to sort of work with those mandates from both administrations to sort of follow those in our construction of these guidelines. Um, and generally those looking at things such as uh, building design, the overall facilities, the in energy use of the facilities, how waste was both created and disposed of, and the, the cleaning materials used, packaging, serviceware, etc. And then overall sourcing of foods relates back to this original definition I gave you, but um, loosely. Again, there's a lot of interpretation between, between these issues. So these are guidelines. And this is a nice government definition of guidelines. This is from the Department of Veteran Affairs. Um, and I will say that right now with these guidelines, we're in the process of implementing them. And I, I share this definition with some, um, you know, with, with some concern because, you know, what I want as I work with um, our partners to get them to use these guidelines, the last thing I really want to stand, step up in, here and say, and say, well, guidelines are, um, let's just read it as a statement by which to determine a course of action that aims to streamline a particular processes according to a set of routine or sound practices. Okay, that's good. That's what we're that's what we've done. We set this out. But it's the next parts that concern me when I'm thinking, okay, I've got to get this in a is they're never following them is never mandatory. Guidelines are not binding or not enforced. I named them guidelines, by the way. I was responsible for that. Um, is that what we created? Something that's um, never mandatory and not enforced? Is that okay? Is that how you want to organize a set of guidelines that are going to affect your food service establishment? Okay. And we're just going to go through this and we'll, we'll think through that a little bit because I actually think, I'll go and tell you, I think it is. I think it's the right term. I think we are developing guidelines. I think what you don't want to do is be perceived as the food police or have a draconian attack on people's choice. What you do is you want to work with, well, I'm going to go on a little bit before we get back to this. Um, so guidelines are to assist uh, management contractors in aligning their food service with healthier, more sustainable choices and practices. Who are we interested in? Well, we're, first of all, we were interested in HHS. That's 120,000 people. We're interested in all of GSA's buildings. Um, there are 10,000 buildings. All their 10,000 buildings, by the way, do not have cafeterias. Most of them do have vending machines. Many of them do have vending machines. We're interested in vending machines. Uh, we'll take what we can get. But we're also interested in these guidelines being translated out to your all's university, to your all's state, um, to local businesses, to wherever. And in these areas, we're interested in everywhere that sells food. Or that has food. We're interested in, you know, meetings and uh, 
conferences, etc. Guidelines, let's see, I've mentioned some of these. New York City has sort of really championed this whole process. Um, they've done a remarkable job of um, not just creating guidelines, and the creation of the guidelines from a nutritional, nutritional perspective is sort of, it's also just a sideline discussion to what we're talking about here, because I'm presenting this very much from a public health um, intervention perspective, which is actually not really what I do. Um, what I really do and the way I really think is from more from the nutritional uh, guidelines perspective. So I'd be happy to, as we go through this, to talk more about the specifics of the nutritional guidelines. It's really a different thing. But New York City did a very nice job of creating nutritional guidelines, which is quite a process, and they're some of the forerunners in this, and then very cleverly implementing them across the city. Um, L.A. County's done the same thing. L.A. County um, has done a remarkable job. Uh, they've actually gone to 100% healthy vending in their county, which I wouldn't even think was maybe necessarily a very good idea. Uh, but they're showing it to be financially uh, successful, and they are doing it. So that's amazing. We have Michigan, California, and Oregon. Michigan and California. Michigan has a law in place. Law. They have guidelines in place for their um, all-state institutions. California has our guy, a version of our guidelines in their appropriations committee. Oregon is developing um, something to go into their, into their legislation as well. Um, our guidelines are in. And then many schools and businesses um, already use various types of guidelines, such as Yale and the entire UC system in California has guidelines they use. I know UC Davis does. Uh, so, why food service guidelines? And I sort of mentioned this, but a few things. Um, this is back to the food environment change in the, through policy. You change the envir environment and individuals might change. You know, I think at least it's a beginning. Um, but the institutional setting is remarkable because we're standing in an institutional setting right now. We've all been, everyone here has certainly been influenced by the institutional setting today. Um, and probably many days of your week you're influenced by the institutional setting and the, and the food choices in, in these settings. And I did go check out your all's vending machines and as well as in the hotel as well as uh, in the uh, airport. And actually the vending machines here do have a healthy column on the right, which I noticed. But I will tell you, and you should know this from marketing, is that the premier choice item in a vending machine is left top corner. So that's where you want your healthy item. At least that's what I'm told by the vending people. Um, so I noticed that it was their right column all the way down, which is healthy here, where it probably should be center. That should be your healthy items. Uh, people spend a lot of time at work as well. So the work environment is a great environment to adjust the dietary. And we'll get into what I mean by adjust the dietary availability here in a second. Um, indirectly, you learn these practices at work, or you pick them up at work, or you get used to particular things at work or in school or so forth. And we know this from the school, from the uh, primary, secondary school setting, is that kids go home from experiencing things like school gardens, which is that literature I'm familiar with the most, and they tell her, they say, Mommy, Daddy, I had this vegetable today, can you buy me some? You know, and they actually take dietary practices home with them. Um, and I'm, maybe adults could do that, I don't know, we're not so swift to change. Um, and then the systems impact here is I think what, when I said this is a systems approach, this is what's interesting about this whole technique and about this whole 
method is, is you can increase production of healthy foods. And one of the problems is if you don't increase demand, you don't increase use, you just you can't go to the production side and, and ask industry or farmers to take a hit. They're just not going to do it. It's not going to happen. And I, I, I joked a minute ago, so why have farmers markets increased? Farmers markets have increased because demand for those foods have increased. Because farmers are stepping up to an increasing demand. Um, so that's this change. So approach. Let me see what we got next here. Yeah. Um, and th this is where, uh, you know, guidelines, standards, policies, what are we talking about here? Within the guidelines, we have things we call standards. So you hide inside the guidelines, you hide standards. Um, how do you get them to be used? I mean, how do you get them to be uh, followed? If they're a guideline, we've already sort of said that even the term guideline sort of implies that you don't have to follow it. How do you get them to be followed? It's the business case. You sell these guidelines. You let industry compete over guidelines. We put guidelines into RFPs. We write them into the contracts for our buildings. And then industry is allowed to compete to say who can meet the guidelines. Um, we're responsible for the health of our employees. I'm just saying that rhetorically as anyone involved in a business. Um, there's some responsibility you have there if you're doing things such as hosting a cafeteria. Um, if you run a cafeteria, in a way you're somewhat responsible for the food you sell and for what it's going to do to your clientele. How do you make the decisions of what you sell in a cafeteria? Well, most businesses that sell food will have someone on staff that is, say, a registered dietitian or someone advises, or the chef or someone, advises around the nutritional quality, whatever that means, of the food that's being sold. All the guidelines that we've created do is they assist in that process of assist in allowing a contractor to formulate an overall dietary provision that is in line with the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. It's a simple idea. Um, and it provides some details, such as really simple ideas, and I'll go through some of these details in a minute, such as increased fruits and vegetable offerings, um, whole grains, and that sort of thing. You know, it's simple. But these are the standards within the guidelines that contractors make an agreement that they will provide uh, in the cafeterias. Gentle, flexible, um, these words, how do you implement this? What's the strategy for implementation? So you get a contractor, if you put out a bid, you put an RFP and you get 20 contractors and they all, um, you know, they say the degree of the guidelines they can make. I can make 90% of this, 80%, 95%, 110%. You pick the one, 100%, 10%. They come in, they set up their shop, they have this incredibly healthy food, it's really good, and their profits are going through the ground. What do you, and people are complaining, I can't believe they have all that da 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 healthy food. What do you do? Do you say, no, it's the guidelines, you have to keep following them? No, that's not how people change. You know, you don't force healthy food on people. That, that's not the strategy here. And I, I'm going to get back to this. Um, in general, that was a teaser, I'm going to go back to that. In general, um, we try to stay at the, the food level and we try to stay at the choice versus restriction level. So that was, these are two critical philosophic aspects that, that we approach.
approach these guidelines with. Um, and again, it, it's got to be feasible. I mean, this is critical here. And find out who the stakeholders are. Who are the stakeholders? Are they, bus are they the businesses and the customers? I mean, how deep do stakeholders go? Um, so, this is where I, I'm sort of uh, dig a little hole here. Is we have two types of we're each two types of people. When we're um, on the over there, we're that's after dinner. This is the after dinner side. This is the before dinner side. So after we've eaten, we're economical. We go to the grocery store. We make good decisions. You know, we know about nutrition information. We make very good choices, and we know we count our resources, and we're quite wise. Here we're hungry, we're panicked, the kids are yelling, um, and it's just like, what's available? What can I grab and shove down the hole in my face? Um, if you recognize in society that this is the way the world works, at least to some degree, then you can take advantage of that by constructing or orchestrating our world so that people tend to make the healthy choice. And these ideas down at the bottom are all different ideas that have been presented in the literature in a variety of fields about how to get people to do things. And I, I think when I say a variety of fields, I mean literally a variety of fields. Um, status quo bias, actually that term actually comes from, the, uh, from work done um, in, in the insurance field where employees are either opted in, or maybe that was the opt out, opt in one, anyway. They're opted in or opted out to having insurance when they join, um, when, when they get a job. And if they have to opt out of insurance, that makes for a very, they, they don't, people don't tend to opt out, but people don't tend to opt in. So if the default bias is that you have insurance, if the default bias is that the food is healthy, if that's the status quo or the default bias, that tends to be what people do. So you work with the natural energy flows. People don't tend to go against the energy flow. Same with choice architecture. Um, I'll give you my choice architecture story, um, since one of the rare times, actually, for me, there's actually a lot of men in the room, um, talks to a lot of women um, in this field. Um, in the Sheephold Airport in Amsterdam, I don't know if any of y'all been there, any of the men in the room, I've not been in the women's room, in the women's bathroom in that airport, so I can't speak to it, but I can speak to the men's room. And when I was, I've been in that airport for a number of times over the years, and I've I just, it's one of the things I remember in that airport is that in the urinals in the men's room, etched, they have these tall urinals about that high, beautiful sort of ceramic urinals, and down at the bottom, etched in the bottom, is a little horsefly about that big. It's a beautiful etching. You look at it and you're kind of like, well, you're more like this. You're kind of like staring and you're like, that's, it's nicer than you'd expect. And I just remembered it. For, and then I read about two years ago, you're blushing. Um, uh, I read about two years ago this, this article by these guys here, Thaler and I don't know how you say his name, um, and that was done as a part of a public health study on spillage, uh, on men spill, uh, spillage. And it decreased men missing the urinal by 90% <laughs> because they were staring at a horse fly or peeing on it or something. I don't know. But this is simple. Right? It's, it, maybe you could say, well, it's incredibly clever. No, I don't think it's incredibly clever. It's just a simple way to organize and orchestrate a world so that the healthy choice is the easy choice, that it's the default choice. Anyway. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, it's another interpretation of the same thing, really. And it's about how, you know, how hard is it to push this ball of healthy eating and physical activity into common practice? And how do we change that? You know, if, if this... If this is really steep, you can forget it. No one's going to do it. Well, people, there are people in the room like myself who are psychotic enough that, yeah, we think that's important for some reason, but then we're going to get hit by a bus. The idea, you can do this several ways. You can do it up here by actually changing the weight on your, on your, on your lever here. But you can also move the fulcrum. And I want to say the fulcrum is your paradigm or movements. Those are hard to do. It's hard to change social structures. It's hard to change cultural norms. It can be done. That's clever. That's, that, that's a different thing. But these at the top are more your variables within a system that, that you can influence and try to make this movement happen with. So these are our guidelines. But real quick, I'll go through these guidelines with you. I spent the last 50 minutes trying to avoid talking about them. Um, I've explained how they got to get, how they were constructed and how they went together. Um, and I'll, I'll say right off the bat, so right now we have them in, uh, we, we had a test facility we put them in, which was convenient, um, well, it was not really a test facility, it was just the first contract we put out. Um, uh, they started in January of this year, uh, before the guidelines were actually released. Um, we got them into the, just, just was luck into the HHS um, headquarters building in DC. The profits have doubled in that cafeteria since these guidelines have been in place. So the fear of, oh, healthy guidelines are going to hurt your profits, um, in this case are unfounded. And we seem to find more and more economic support that the provision of healthy guidelines in cafeterias or vending machines or in sundry shops does not tend to hurt profit. Uh, um, and this is another issue. It's really another discussion. I think the discussion around, oh, it's going to hurt profit, that's the wrong discussion. I think the discussion that you really want to have is, isn't it my choice to serve what I want to in my cafeteria? I think it's around liberty and business practices. And I think that's actually a much more important discussion to have and to be sure that when guidelines like this are put in place and when they're implemented and when they're being thought through, that the stakeholders are involved and empowered. That's where you'll lose people, is if you start pushing these guidelines like this on people. So our goal was simply, and very simply, to increase food and beverage choices and sustainable practices at federal work sites. And we're going to base this on the dietary guidelines. Um, so the overview of the dietary guidelines, I've mentioned this already, that this is the key to the 2010 dietary guidelines, consume nutrient-dense foods and beverages. Other people may think the key is different. That's the key I thought was the key. And it's very simple. It's fruits and vegetables, uh, low-fat, fat-free dairy. Again, seafood, this has been brought up a few times today with some talking people. Seafood has been pushed more in, the, in these dietary guidelines than before. And then, of course, limit sodium, solid fats, and added sugars. Um, and the big message, and I, I shouldn't, should be careful to say this, a big message from the dietary guidelines, a primary message is this final line here. And, and this final line probably could even be put at the top. And that's maintain calorie balance over time to achieve and sustain a healthy weight. Um, these guidelines are clearly, and we remembered the 2002 guidelines as the dietary, as the dietary guidelines that really brought calorie balance uh, forefront. Um, so we wanted to make healthy choices the easy choices, more accessible, more appealing, and more affordable.
here is a, an example of the company that got the contract for the HHS Humphrey building. This is their program. They already had a program when they got the contract. So we didn't say, no, 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 you need to use our program or our guidelines. We did say you need to use our guidelines. How they get to our guidelines, we don't care. Most of them have their own programs. They have their own RDs. They have their own method of food preparation, etc. Not a problem. And often these programs go beyond guidelines that groups would develop. So just in a real nutshell, what our guidelines provide uh, are the same thing that dietary guidelines ask for. Fruits and vegetables, whole grains, low-fat milk, um, vegetarian entrees, lean meats, juice, 100% juice, only 100% juice, um, drinking water, which is a step, you know, I actually will say I don't know where the dietary guidelines are on drinking water. I think they actually do have a, a line in it. Hmm, sorry about that, but drinking water is, a, is definitely a, C, a, a CDC point right now. We are very interested in the provision of quality drinking water. I know so you have a lot of fountains right out here that actually work, which is nice. And the water actually tastes a little bit like asbestos and cyanide and mercury, but it's not bad. Um, uh, <laughs> I have a very sensitive palate. Uh, um, foods with less sodium and no trans fats and smaller portion sizes. So that's the bottom line there. Sustainable practices. So I'd say in the last uh, couple, maybe 15 minutes of me talking about things, maybe 20 minutes, I've not really pushed sustainable. You know, I've moved more towards health and nutrition and this type of thing. And it comes back to sustainable, you know, some of the, some, the, so much of it comes back to sustainable and sustainable purchasing. and how do we get back to being sure that our cafeterias are sustainable and they support local economies? And this was much harder and more um, difficult to work into the guidelines because it's, in a way it's more difficult to work into the business practice. Maybe tradi traditionally, I think, but not so much now. Many businesses, large businesses, such as Sodexo and other very large, and Sodexo is one of the largest food companies, one of the largest companies, period, in the world. They're fully interested in sustainability. Why? Sustainability is their future. If you're interested in something beyond the next election, sustainability, it's an important concept. So these are just the general things, sustainability, that we have in the guidelines. Um, you go beyond this or less than this, it, it doesn't matter a whole lot. These are a general set of things we felt like were both feasible um, and could capture sort of the overall picture. And, and some of these down here, you know, we, we push for some locally, organically um, sourced foods. Um, you know, the offer drinking water, we put this in here a couple times because actually it turns out that, you know, having a water machine by cutting down on bottled water is an incredibly important part of the sustainability message. So to get away from bottles. Um, let's see, so we've already pushed this a little bit. Um, these guidelines will apply to um, a lot of facilities. Um, You know, I would actually, uh, I could say some more about implementation, but I've said a lot. But I'd love to get at least some discussion. I feel bad. I've spoken the whole time. Some comments, some criticism, tomatoes. You all hear about this, thing, the, this tomato uh, report? This guy wrote a book on tomatoes. No? Wow. 
excellent book on tomatoes was just written by a reporter out of Iowa, I think, but about the issue in Florida with slavery and tomatoes. Oh gosh, y'all need to, everyone needs to type in tomatoes and slavery into Google and read this guy's stuff. Yeah, the guy, he was on a Science Friday two weeks ago, and the guy from the State Department actually called in, like under Hillary Clinton, called in and talked about this situation with slavery and tomatoes in Florida. It's very discouraging. Oh. Sure, sure, absolutely. I, I think it's. I think, I think it's critical. So we have sold this to people, and that's what I would say is uh, inspiring. I think there is a change happening, and that profit is a bottom line here. Is if the system is not profitable, this won't work. It just, it just won't work. It's got to make money throughout the system. Um, this issue of is food cheap or how much does food cost is you need to look at the life cycle cost of the food. You know, when you talk about not having a recycle bin and you think that's cheaper than throwing it in the garbage, you're not thinking about the life cycle of that product. You're not even thinking about the short-term life cycle, just the cost of a landfill near, near here, not to mention the future of clean it from the landfill, not to mention the loss of the product that you're throwing away. You know, if you look at life cycle costs, you realize that the costs of many of these issues are much cheaper than you expect. And that's why um, some of the very largest organizations, uh, businesses such as Sodexo, um, why they are buying into this type of this, into sustainability thinking more than just greenwashing it. They're really actually changing the way they do business because it actually does make a profit. It is it does have profit as a sense. And to go back to the ADA's uh, definition of, I'll be right with you, um, to go back to the ADA's definition of sustainability and how that relates to, uh, how, how profit relates in there. I think it doesn't say it specifically in the definition, but I think it, 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 re, um, it suggests that part of the aspect of sustainability is that production and consumption have to be integrated. 
says that specifically. But that integration is the, the financial flow, the flow of resources, the flow of calories, the flow of human labor, all have to exist in, these supportive, uh, in the support of reciprocity. And if they don't, no, the system won't work. But uh, so, so yeah, your point's well taken. Um, but it's also a matter of working towards it. it. These things like offering organic, these in our guidelines, these are a percent of the overall food, and we give the option between organic, local, sustainably grown. So there's lots of ways to sort of weasel out of it or weasel into it. Um, it's also over the whole year, and if you look at how things are actually produced. Um, in different regions, um, it's relatively easy as a business to purchase 25% of your uh, products as a cafeteria locally because there is local production in most places and if you do 75% of your fruits and vegetables seasonally during the spring, summer, fall, you'll hit that overall the year 25% local. So it can be done. Yeah. I was just curious, um, you know, especially in South Carolina, the overwhelming majority of businesses are small businesses, not the larger businesses you're talking about. So have you guys discussed any plans for how to get small businesses involved in this and how to market? Yes, that's interesting. Um, it's funny, that's, a, that's something I need to, this is my first trial shot of these slides and something I've left off. Um, one of the introductory issues that we went into this development of these guidelines with is they need to work equally for different scales of industry. So they need to work equally well for large, medium, and small. Um, the, uh, and at this time we have implemented these guidelines with both small, medium, and large industry. So they've been received about the same. I think what we have not got into here there's some issues that we've, we've put these guidelines in across the U.S. now in a number of different locations. I don't know in those locations how, how geographically and demographically they are different. I think there are going to be some areas because of the demographics and the geographic issues where different parts of the guidelines will be just more or less fe feasible. But that's an issue about the flexibility of application is you have to recognize where you are and the realities of that things will be different and that there are places where more will be imported that organic will be impossible, maybe organic will be 100%, who knows, that that local variability is going to change. And that's, you know, I would encourage anyone that's interested in working with guidelines this, like this to push for your, you know, your highest standard, but really let industry figure out through competition what that standard ultimately will end up being. Well, not just industry, but it's an industry relationship with consumers. So it's that stakeholder commitment that works to figure out what the, homeo the new homeostasis is. The guidelines are to raise the health and sustainability aspects of the homeostasis, and it settles back in with consumers and businesses trying to figure it out. Once they figure it out, you can push the guidelines higher. Contract after contract, you can readjust so that you have higher standards. But people have to get used to it. Yes, ma'am. I guess my question would be, it seems like a lot of it is on the side of consumers. Like you talk a lot about like how to raise awareness from consumers, but how do you do it for the industry as you were just talking about, but especially for the small food producers and like agricultural workers? Because they're, they're the ones in my experience who have the least and don't get these subsidies and you know, they're competing. 
not exactly sure your question's going, but I'm going to hit a few places, and then you can sort of ask me again. Um, one is, um, well, that's one of the comments, one of the things I think of is, it's, and one of the reasons guidelines like this are useful is it creates a standard for industry to follow, and that would include, include small industry. Like if you go to one of these guidelines, Sodexo, their comments are like, well, we have guidelines. And these just sort of assist them in saying, adjusting theirs to our standard. So, well, that's great. You have guidelines. Good. Well, we want you to use these somewhat. And they just adjust their own so that it fits. But many smaller cafeterias where you run one or two cafeterias, they have no standard whatsoever. They're just selling burgers or whatever out the back of the van. Um, are these guidelines harder to put in place there? And then how do that type or purveyor, how do they actually relate to, uh, say, nutrition as an idea at all? Do they have a sort of public health view, a nutritional view? And I think what happens there and what gets, I think, problematic is every chef, not to knock chefs at all, I dig chefs, but every chef has their own perspective on what is healthy. Every person has their own perspective on what's healthy. How much of that perspective on what's healthy, how much does that really align with uh, some baseline reality of what truly is healthy. I mean, how much do the dietary guidelines really align with the baseline reality of what is actually healthy? And I don't know, but the, the dietary guidelines are a science-based, a science-extracted, um, mm, at least hypothesis, around what a good diet will be. And then these guidelines are an extraction of that. Um, so they attempt to provide guidance to the people you're talking about. Um, at the uh, small contractor level. Now, the farm worker level or the farmer level. I just, I, I worry that it seems like it goes for these bigger industries a lot of the time. That, that's the relationship that we're developing and encouraging them to be more sustainable and things like that. And then you have smaller food producers and they are sustainable, but they don't have the access because they're not large enough. And Yeah, you know, this small, medium, large thing is a little confusing for me because when you see, like, the number of employees a small company has, it's always much larger than you expect it to be. You know, I don't know what the numbers are, but I was just hearing what the definition for a small company was, and it was, I don't even want to throw a number out, but it seemed awfully large to me. It was $50 million or something. I was like, not employees, dollars a year or something. It was just, it was just much larger. Like, wow, that's a small company nowadays, huh? Really? Uh, it was... It didn't seem to fit to align for me what a small what small would mean, um, but these aren't these aren't targeted specifically at large industry at all. Um, and I think different types of industry have to work. I use the word industry there lightly. Um, different types of businesses have to deal with changes in say advice, public health guidance differently. So for a large industry, retooling a massive food system is very different from a mom-and-pop shop which really just has to use less sodium. It's a relatively different retooling. Um, some of these issues in here, which I didn't mention, I mean, some of the things that we go through here, um, menu labeling, that's a tough one for small, small shops, but they're exempt from this is we use the FDA guidance. So mom and pop are exempt here. Um, do mom and pop know how much um, trans fat or sodiums in their food? Trans fat 
they absolutely should. Sorry, if you're producing food and you don't know how much trans fats are in your food, you're being negligent. You know, so that's just no excuse. There's a degree, it's like being a farmer and not knowing that, you know, DDT is illegal or something to use, you know. Um, there are just certain things that are the responsibility if you're handling food that you should know, best practices type thing. And this does come back to good manufacturing practices and so forth. Um, and a lot of these guidelines are based on that. And through the implementation process, uh, good, good practices are sort of encouraged. Um, sodium. I saw your flyer. <laughs> yeah. I just had a question. Uh, I was kind of thinking about your first slide with Wendell Berry quote and sort of linking these things. Do you know if, if there's, have you seen places where maybe a, an institution would be able to um, get their health care provider to provide sort of an institutional discount if they were to follow the food guidelines or something so you can sort of... Yeah, that's a great question. So I, well, there's so many areas here to talk about. Um, but Kaiser Permanente, Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, a number of different health care providers, um, hospitals, and we have these guidelines. We're actually working to put these guidelines into all the hospitals in America. One of our one of our target areas are hospitals, um, and yeah, that the part of that would be. I mean, that's part of the incentive there. Now, do you get a? And you're sort of saying, would you get a benefit? I don't know. Maybe uh, he, you know, like um, that would be an institutional incentive right. if, if they knew that they were going to save healthcare, you know, insurance rates for their right. for their employees if institutionally they were meeting. And that's, you know, Kaiser is a very interesting organization because they, um, you almost see them, they're like a bottom line organization. Is they actually look at the bottom line and go, oh, we need healthy cafeterias. You know, they're very responsive to the bottom line. Um, I think uniquely and interestingly, considering we live in a, in a capitalistic society, you know, it's, they're very, but they're long range looking and they sort of go, okay, how can we most benefit? When we most benefit the health of our customers, we'll most benefit the sustainability in our bottom line. And I recognize they're nonprofits, so bottom line has a has a, maybe a slightly different meaning. Um, but I think that's one reason they've been so uh, eager to encourage uh, to left farmers markets um, and food access in general, and now uh, changes in their food service. And they've done a tremendous amount of their food service. Um, and they've been one of the forerunners. I didn't mention that earlier when I went through the um, group. So they've been one of the forerunners in implementing uh, a variety of both sustainable and health guidelines. Um, now, incentives in general, I haven't talked about much either. But do you incentivize through this process, do you incentivize healthy foods while you, say, tax unhealthy foods? And that's really, we, we put some suggestions such as that within uh, 
within the guidelines. And this would all be, you know, done in a stealthy manner. So it's not like something that's gonna be up front. But in general, we would I would say why not adjust your system? If your if the principle you're moving behind is increase healthy choices, make every healthy make every choice a healthy choice, but in some way encourage those healthy choices where you're not pulling away, you're not restricting unhealthy choices. But it doesn't hurt for unhealthy choices to maybe increase the price a little and use that increased price to decrease the price on healthy choices. Now, is that, and that's this idea of libertarian paternalism, which I, I didn't really, I talked about the underneath, but I didn't really talk about the top. That's the idea of libertarian paternalism, is you're allowing people to make a choice. That's the libertarian part. But the paternalism part is you're setting up the choices. And it, you say, well, is that manipulation? Is there something negative about that? Well, that's society, you know? That's what we do as businesses. You walk in, they set it up for you. They're the they're the paternal influence, and you're you got the free. You can pick what type of latte you want, you know. Um, so, so I think the, the libertarian paternalism idea, which I should have talked about more, maybe, but I, I don't actually talk about it often, as most people seem to now at this point have got it. <laughs> um, fascinating concept. Great paper by those guys. Um, uh, I have no shortage of people when I bring it up, they say, the first thing they say is, I don't want any part of libertarianism or paternalism. And I'm kind of <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> that's perfect then. Libertarian paternalism is for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, other questions? Yeah, and I mean it's, that's it's critical to the entire you know thinking behind um, not necessarily these guidelines, but in part these guidelines, but about food systems thinking is you really want to think about when you think about healthy food, you need to think about the healthy food system. And if the food wasn't, if this you hear people talking about this um, more in the radical fringe, sort of saying, well, we need healthy soil for healthy food, you know. Is there some direct sort of uh, reductionist chemical or nutrient that I can talk about that moves from healthy soil to healthy food? I'm not really worried about that. I think the metaphor is fine, though, especially when you bring in sustainability as well. Healthy farms, healthy soils, healthy animals, all these things are adding up to sustainable long-term growth, healthy farmers. I mean, healthy farmers, it's not a bad idea. I mean, you know, do I have a you know, what's a, take different perspectives on pesticides. One of the things you can certainly say about pesticides, herbicides, etc., that concern all of us is that someone has to apply them. And farm workers are exposed to a lot of chemicals, and so are farmers. Uh, and so are everyone that handles that produce, or whatever crop it is. So there's many different points in the chain where any sort of toxicity in the chain can be problematic. So I think when you talk about health in the food system, you really need to extend it to a life cycle of the food, from the ecology around production to what we do with our waste. And that's all the wastes we make in every form. So, and I think, yeah, I think that entire life cycle does need to be made as healthy as possible.
questions?